I invite you to be finding Luke chapter 1 in your Bibles, Luke chapter 1, and it's that time of year again. Christmas trees are everywhere, decorations fill the uh, yards and the houses, uh, there are lights everywhere, nativity scenes, shopping, uh, eating, between Thanksgiving and the end of the year, people, they say we gain an average of eight pounds uh, over the holidays. And so in January, it'll be time to join the gym and get all that weight off. But it is that time of year again. And, and by that, I mean Christmas. Uh, and for the next few weeks, our focus over the next four weeks uh, will be the advent, the first advent of Jesus. Sometimes you hear that word advent, and it simply means coming the first coming of Jesus. Uh, we're going to focus mainly on Luke chapter 1, verse 5, through Luke chapter 2, verse 21. And today's reading is fairly lengthy. We're going to look at Luke 1, verses 5 to 38. But as we progress through uh, the first couple of chapters in Luke, the plan is on Christmas morning, we are blessed this year to be able to have actually our Sunday worship will be on Christmas Day, and so we will actually, the, the text for that day will be the shepherds and the birth of Jesus. So that's kind of where we will be working our way toward over the next four weeks. But today, we're going to read Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 38, and part of my job as a pastor is to help to show you how to study your Bibles, to get uh, some something out of it when you read and your study. So as we read this, these verses, notice the similar yet different, uh, the similarities and differences in these two different announcements. The angel of God is going to come make an announcement to Zechariah, and he's also going to come make an announcement to Mary. And notice where these announcements are similar, but also notice where they're different. Understand as we read this, that God has been silent for 400 years. The last word God has spoken to his people is through the prophet Malachi, 400 years prior. Then all of a sudden, 400 years later, God breaks his silence. 400 years later, God starts to move, and God, God starts to have something working. So let's hear what God... These are the first words God's spoken in 400 years, he's going to speak through his angel Gabriel. Luke chapter 1, beginning at verse 5. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless, but they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they both were well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zechariah saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. 
But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedience to the wisdom of the just, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zechariah and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Now in the sixth month, that's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. Of the house of David, the virgin's name was Mary. And having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. But when she saw him, she was troubled at his saying, and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? And the angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. <coughs> now indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived the Son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God nothing shall be impossible. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. When we look at these two announcements and compare them, one of them took place in the temple. 
The other took place in a little town in northern Israel called Nazareth. Zechariah was a priest. Mary was a young teenager. Notice the pattern of both announcements. The angel appears, Gabriel appears. Both Zechariah and Mary were troubled. They were afraid. The first words Gabriel spoke to both of them were, don't be afraid. Gabriel makes his announcement to both of them. Both of them have a question about how, how can this be? What's going to happen? Gabriel answers their question. He gives them a sign, both of them, and he departs. The first announcement to Zechariah concerns a forerunner who's going to prepare the way for Messiah and bring gladness in the heart of his parents. The second announcement concerns a Messiah who will save the world but rip out the heart of his mother as that happens. Mary is young, Elizabeth's old. Mary is single, Elizabeth has been married for a long time. Mary is a virgin. Elizabeth has been married for a long time. Mary isn't even supposed to be thinking about having a child. Elizabeth has been trying to have a child for a long time and is well past childbearing age. Can I tell you this morning that both of these announcements show that God has a grand plan. When we read Old Testament scripture starting in Genesis and we have the creation and we have the fall and we have so many different people that come on the scene uh, that carry God's plan forward, Abraham and Moses and Joshua and David and the prophets and all of these different people and then suddenly for 400 years it all stops. It's like maybe God's plan has been thwarted. Maybe God's plan has been stopped. Maybe God's plan has been silent. No. 400 years later, God says, now it's time. It's time for my plan to resume. And both of these announcements show that God has a grand plan. Both of these announcements show God taking the initiative. Man doesn't go to God. God comes to man. God takes the initiative and he plans and he goes and he acts. Both of these announcements show God's grace. God cares about his world. God cares about his people. God wants to take care of his people and all that's through God's grace. You know, by right, none of us have a right to any blessing that God gives us. Would you agree? It's all God's grace. Both of these announcements... Gabriel comes to Zechariah by grace, gives Zechariah and Elizabeth a child by grace, gives Mary a child by grace. All of it's by grace. Our Savior's by grace. Our salvation's by grace. We'll talk a little further about that in just a little bit. Both of these announcements also show God's power. Our God is a God of the impossible. You know, I've decided that God must like giving old people a child. Because uh, he, he did that to Abraham, remember? 
Remember how many people, when you read your Old Testament history, how many of God's faithful women were barren and they had a hard time having children? I think God does that to show he's the God of the impossible. Maybe you're in an impossible situation. Maybe the, the doctors have said you don't have a lot of hope or or a counselor said there's no way to save your marriage or, or your kids are hopeless or this or that. Can I tell you that there's nothing that's impossible with God? The God of the universe is active. The God of the universe cares. And the God of the universe is powerful. But as we especially look at God's announcement, Gabriel's announcement uh, to Mary this morning, First of all, I want us to look at the idea that sometimes our vision of God is limited by our circumstances. Sometimes our vision of God is limited by our circumstances. Mary is part of a marriage arrangement. She's betrothed to Joseph, and she's part of a marriage arrangement that had most likely been initiated by her parents. When Mary was young, Mary didn't get to pick her husband. Mary wasn't going to get a chance to find somebody better looking or somebody that had a better job. Way back when Mary was a child, a legal agreement was entered between Joseph and his family and Mary and her family, and that's the way it was. Mary is innocent. Mary's a virgin. And God is going to take her innocence and use it for his glory. Imagine Mary's shock. Put yourself in Mary's shoes. Imagine her shock when she hears Gabriel's announcement. You're going to have a child. And Mary says, well, how is that possible? I haven't known a man. And by known, she means a biblical. She says, I'm a virgin. She says, uh, in biology class, we studied, and, and God, I, I, I hate to let you know this, but virgins don't have children. Uh, how is this going to happen? How is this going to be? Mary's looking at her circumstance in that time, and she says, there's no way. God, you, you must have me mixed up with someone else. And can I say, those of you that are in, some of y'all might not be interested in this, if you're not, you can go to sleep for a couple of minutes and I'll wake you up in a little bit. But Luke uses a very specific word. Luke is, Luke's a doctor. Doctors like to take notes. Doctors like to write. Luke uses a very specific Greek word for this word virgin. It is the word parthenos. And that word is very specific to virgin. As a matter of fact, if you would go to Athens, Greece, uh, even today, you'll see the ruins of the Parthenon. That comes from the same word, Parthenos. Parthenon was the Parthenon was built to honor the Greek goddess Athena, who was the virgin goddess. If you were to tell a good Greek that Athena wasn't a virgin, he'd be ready to fight you, because that's that word, Parthenos, and that's the word that Luke chooses to use. Parthenos is just as specific in Greek as the word virgin is in English. Luke goes out of his way to point out that Mary was a virgin. 
And that's important. We're going to talk about that here in just a little bit. Mary has kept herself pure, as she should. That was part of this agreement, that when you marry your husband, you're going to be a virgin. And before hearing this announcement from Gabriel, she has no idea that God is going to use her purity for his glory to continue his grand plan for the world. Mary's vision of her circumstances certainly couldn't be as big as God's vision for her circumstances. But can I tell you, neither is ours. Maybe you're saying, I'm not important. There's not much I can do for God. Brother Andy, you don't know me. I've messed up so many different ways, and, and I've done this, and I've done that. I've said this, and I've said that. I've failed to do this. I've failed to do that. Can I tell you that God knows everything about you? He figured in your failures when he saved you. Amen? God can use you in spite of your circumstances. Don't let your circumstances limit God. Mary at this point in time was letting her circumstances kind of get in the way. Lord, there, there's, I, this just can't be. Well, God had other plans. And maybe, just maybe, God has plans for you. And God has plans for me. Let's not limit God. After all, if God could say, let there be light, and there was light. If God could create the world and the solar system and the universe out of nothing, can he work through your circumstances and through my circumstances? Secondly, the virgin birth is important. Let's uh, talk just a little bit about the, about the virgin birth. The virgin birth is a major attacking point of liberal scholars as well as atheists. They say, well, there's just no way that a baby could be born of a virgin. There's no way that a virgin could have a baby. And, and liberal scholars say, well, Paul never talked about the virgin birth. The only place the virgin birth is mentioned is in Matthew and Luke. And you know that kind of strikes me as funny because those same liberal scholars will say, well, Jesus never talked about homosexuality, only Paul. Uh, whatever it is they're trying to prove, they'll try to use Jesus or Paul. But I've got a question for us this morning. How many times does something have to be mentioned in the Bible for it to be true? Just once, right? So if it's in the Bible, if God said Jesus that Mary was a virgin, I'm willing to believe that Mary's a virgin. You know what else I'm willing to believe? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It doesn't say how other than the fact he spoke it into existence. You know what else I believe? I believe the tomb's empty. I believe a dead man rose from the grave never to die again. And I'll go even further than that. I believe that dead man is, went to heaven, is now seated on the right hand of God, and he's coming back. He's going to have a second advent, a second coming. You know why, why I believe that? Because it says so. God's word tells me so. The virgin birth is a fact. Well, how do we know that? First of all, 
Mary was part of a betrothal contract, and because she was betrothed to Joseph, that supports the fact she was born a virgin. She had to be, to make, it was a legal contract. Just like if you were to sign a legal contract that Victory Nissan is going to deliver you a blue Nissan Sentra, well, if they bring you a purple one, guess what? That contract isn't binding anymore. As a matter of fact, when you, and we'll read it a little bit later on in our, in our studies, not today, but later, when Joseph finds out Mary is pregnant, he is very tempted to divorce her because he thinks she has broken this legal betrothal and God has to come to Joseph and tell her that, no, this is my doing. She's still a virgin. So that legal binding contract supports it. Mary's response to Gabriel, she says, I haven't known a man. I'm a virgin. That supports the fact that Mary was a virgin. Because I can tell you this. If an angel of the Lord came to you, would you lie to that angel? Mary says, I'm a virgin. And guess what? She might fool Joseph. And she might fool her parents. She might fool all the people, but you're not going to fool God. God knows, right? So Mary says, I'm a virgin. So the virgin birth is a fact. Well, why does a virgin birth matter? There's several reasons why the virgin birth is important and why the virgin birth matters. The virgin birth matters philosophically. The reason why it matters philosophically is because the virgin birth shows that God is active and involved in humanity. The virgin birth shows that God isn't merely using natural circumstances to bring about his will. You know, scientists study the Bible and, and they try to come up with some kind of natural explanation for all the miracles that are in the Bible. Let me tell you one, there's not a natural explanation for a virgin birth, amen? That's a miracle. No matter how you, you slice the cheese. We aren't deists. And what I mean by deist, deist is, deists are people who believe in God. They believe God created the world, but they believe that once God created the world, he kind of wiped his hands and said, just lets the world go do its thing. Thomas Jefferson, a lot of our founding fathers in the United States were deists. We are not deists. As a Christian, I believe God created the world. I also believe God is still active. And God still cares about what happens to this world. And God still cares what goes on in this world. That's my philosophy of Christianity. And the virgin birth helps to support that. Amen? Amen. The virgin birth is important. The virgin birth is important theologically. Because if Jesus is born of a virgin, and he is, then that means, first of all, that scripture is true. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah tells King Ahaz that here is a sign, a virgin shall conceive. And that is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. Uh, understand Old Testament prophecy. We talked about this in our Sunday school class this morning. A lot of Old Testament prophecy has what we call near fulfillment and then far fulfillment. 
near fulfillment of this prophecy in Isaiah's day is probably Isaiah's wife. But the far fulfillment, Isaiah actually, 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah says, this, a virgin's going to conceive and have a child. 700 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah prophesies that Jesus is going to be born of a virgin. Now I'm going to get back to the language thing for a minute. So if that knocks you out, go to sleep again. I'll wake you up in here just a little bit. But the Hebrew word that's used in the Old Testament in Isaiah, the Old Testament was originally written in Hebrew. That word is written with a word that could mean young maiden or young girl. Uh, that's, that's, that's what the Hebrew reads. However, 300 years before Jesus was born, when the, when the Greeks translated the Hebrew scriptures into Greek, they used that word uh, once again, parthenos, virgin. They specified the fact that it was a virgin. That's what Isaiah meant. Isaiah's prophesying that 700 years before Jesus was born, it was prophesied he was born of a virgin. The fact that he was born of a virgin shows that scripture's true. I've got a question for you. If the Bible got the virgin birth wrong, what else is it wrong about? Is it wrong about creation? Is it wrong about redemption? Is it wrong about our salvation? The virgin birth is important because the Bible says that's what happened. And either the Bible tells the truth or it's all a lie. It all stands or falls together. So the virgin birth is important philosophically. The virgin birth is important theologically. It shows scripture is true. It also shows that Jesus is divine. If you look at Luke chapter 1, verse 35, Mary says, How can this be since I do not know a man? Verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Jesus Christ is divine because Jesus Christ was conceived of the Holy Spirit. Have you ever thought about this? If Jesus Christ had had an earthly, fleshly father and mother, Jesus Christ couldn't save anybody. If Jesus Christ had an earthly, fleshly father and mother, Jesus Christ is in the same boat Andy Blank's in. The fact is, Jesus Christ is divine. The fact that Jesus was born of a virgin means that Jesus is divine. It also means that Jesus is human. Jesus just didn't float down out of a cloud and say, here I am. Jesus had an earthly mother and a Holy Spirit for the Father. Jesus is also sinless. The virgin birth shows that. Jesus didn't inherit the sin nature of Adam. Have you ever thought about that? Every child that's ever been born on this earth inherits the sin nature of Adam and Eve. Because they sin, their children inherit and all the way down through to the end of time. Jesus Christ is the second Adam. Because he was conceived of the Holy Spirit, he doesn't have Adam's sin nature. There are only two people that have ever been born on this earth that had total free will, and that's Adam and Jesus. When, Adam, when Satan tempted Adam and Eve, 
They did not, they were not predisposed to sin like we are. Had Jesus been born of an earthly father and mother, Jesus Christ would have had a sin nature. He would have been born in sin. Therefore, he couldn't save us, right? But instead, he's conceived of the Holy Spirit. The virgin birth, y'all, is critical. The virgin birth is not one of those things that, well, take it or leave it, it really doesn't matter. The, the virgin birth is important. This announcement that Gabriel makes to Mary, I entitled today's lesson, Can I Have Your Attention, Please? Because that's what God's trying to do. He's trying to get Mary's attention to help her understand. I'll tell you what else the virgin birth shows us. It shows us that salvation's by grace. Can I remind you that you and I can no more save ourselves than we could bring the Messiah into the world? If the Messiah was going to be born to earthly parents, to an earthly father and mother, have you ever thought about the fact that maybe you could bring the Messiah into the world? You say, well, how me? Well, if it's going to be earthly mother and father, why not you? But the fact that it's through the virgin birth, God had to take initiative. God had to perform a miracle If the Holy Spirit fathered Jesus, salvation is 100% by grace. It happened because God wanted it to happen. It happened because God sent himself. It happened because God sent his son. And I tell you, the virgin birth is important philosophically, theologically. It's also important historically. Jesus Christ is the promised one. In Genesis 3, 15, God tells Satan that one day the seed of woman will bruise your head. He's going to put his foot right on your head and crush it. Isn't that what you'd like to do to a snake? Put your foot on his head and crush it? That's Jesus. In Genesis 12, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, through your seed, through your line, through your people, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. That's Jesus. Jesus Christ became a prophet like Moses. Jesus Christ became our high priest. Jesus Christ became our king. Jesus Christ was a historical figure. Y'all, the virgin birth matters. That's a hill that if you're going to be saved, and if you're truly going to be what God wants you to be, you've got to accept the virgin birth. Somebody said, what about all those miracles? I said, that's one of the reasons I believe, because of the miracles. We've got an almighty God that's acting against nature to show everybody, hey, I'm God. Can I remind you of the fact that God came through Gabriel to Zechariah and Mary and Gabriel unfolded God's plan and unfolded their part in his grand plan of redemption. That has implications for us. This announcement to Zechariah, this announcement to Mary, it has implications to us as well. And The first implication I thought of is this, as a Christ follower, 
I have to acknowledge God's right to direct my life with his word. God didn't come to Zechariah and Mary and say, Zechariah, Mary, if you want to, this is what I'm going to do through you. God came to them through Gabriel and said, this is the way it's going to be. This is what I'm going to do through you. And God has that right because he's God. Have you ever thought about this? What if Mary had said no? God, I'm not going to let you do that. That'd be unthinkable, wouldn't it? You can't say no to God. Well, can I tell you that it's just as unthinkable for us to say no to God today? Because God, just like God had the right to direct Zachariah and Mary's life, he's got the right to direct my life and your life. He's got the right to interrupt us. He's got the right to use us any way he wants to for his glory. Back in Mary's day and back in Bible days, they, they had God Baal and Ashtaroth and Molech and, and different gods. The idol of our day is the idol of self. But what do I mean about that? We hear the word self a lot. Self-determination, self-rule, self-satisfaction. And we've come up with several little cliches that support this self-idolatry. You ever heard the phrase, my body, my choice? I'll do whatever I want to. This is my body. <coughs> it's nobody's business what I do. Only God can judge me. It's about self. Nobody has the right to tell me what to do. It's all about me. In our world today, if a man were to leave his wife and three kids after 25 years of marriage for another man, the world applauds. The world says, well done. The world says, you be you. You finally discovered yourself. No matter what the consequences are to those children, to the wife, to the home, can I remind us of something today? And I'll tell anybody that will listen. It is total arrogance to believe we know more than God when it comes down to our lives. Because when you say it's nobody's business, when you say my body, my choice, when you say only God will judge me, when you say you be you, what you're saying to God is, God, I know what's better for me than you do. I've got a little bit of nerve, y'all, but I don't have that kind of nerve. 58 years ago, almost 59 years ago, God placed me in the womb of my mother. And I was born almost three months early. I weighed two pounds and 13 ounces when I was born. I, I'm fortunate to be here. I tell everybody I've been a pain to my parents since the day I was born. <laughs> but can I tell you, God placed me there. And he placed you in the womb of your parents. And if he placed you there, he has the right to direct your life. He has plans for you. God knew you before you ever knew you. 
I'm going to mark. I just thought of that. I'm going to mark it. That's pretty good. God knew you before you ever knew you. And he's got the right to direct your life. Another implication, just like God used Zachariah's story and Mary's story for his plan, God has the right to use our story for his plan. If you're a Christ follower this morning, your life is not about you. Your life is about giving God glory. Your life is not about building your kingdom. It's about building God's kingdom. My goal as pastor of Old New Hope Baptist Church is to not see how big she can grow because we want big numbers. My job and, and my, my goal as pastor of Old New Hope Baptist Church is to see God's will be done through our flock. And I want to see sheep making sheep. And I want to see God's kingdom grow. I want to see Old New Hope's story be God's story. What's God going to do through Old New Hope? Interestingly enough, when we look at the end of this story in verse 34, when Mary said, how can this be true since I don't know a man? And Gabriel answered and says, well, the Holy Spirit is going to conceive. In verse 37, we lose uh, some meaning. There's a word play here in Greek that we use in English. Greek syntax and English syntax are different. And what I mean by syntax is the order in which we say our words. Y'all remember Yoda from Star Wars when he would say something like, having good time, are we? That's syntax, the order... We'd say we're having a good time. Well, Greek, the Greeks have a different syntax than we do as English. It's English. When God told, uh, or when Gabriel told Mary that the Holy Spirit's going to, you're going to conceive of the Holy Spirit, the English translation of verse 37 says, for with God nothing shall be impossible. That's accurate. But in Greek it reads, Uh, let it be according to your word. And then Mary says, well, actually, I'm sorry, the Greek translation where we say, uh, for with God nothing will be impossible, Mary says, let it be according to your word, for every word will not be impossible with God. That's the Greek translation. We say nothing is impossible with God. The Greek syntax says every word will not be impossible with God. That's a little weird for us in English, but it makes sense because Mary's reply is let it be according to your word. We, we, in English, we lose that word, word. We say with God nothing shall be impossible. The Greek said uh, for every word will not be impossible. And Mary says let it be according to your word. God has the right to speak his word over our life. And we say, let it be so. Y'all, can I tell you that Mary's my hero. I'm so impressed with this girl. She's probably ballpark figure, 12, 13, 14 years old. And yet she says, God, do with me. I'm your, I'm your maidservant. Do with me whatever you want to do. Can you say that about God in your life? 
Are you willing to say this morning, God, whatever you want me to do, I'm going to do. Wherever you want me to go, I'm going to go. Whatever you want my life to be, let it be according to your word. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us and thank you for giving us these, this, these two announcements from Gabriel this morning and just thank you for taking initiative to be part of our world. I just pray your Holy Spirit would work on our hearts. I just pray, Holy Spirit, if there's something in our hearts, something in our minds, something in our attitude that we are holding back from letting you have control over it, I pray your Holy Spirit would help us turn loose of that and allow us to honestly be able to say, we surrender all to you. In Jesus' name.